0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Janelle Anderson. Janelle is the Chief Strategy Officer of Century Therapeutics. This is a company using induced pluripotent stem cells with an eye toward making them into off-the-shelf cell therapies for cancer. This is the new dream of cell therapy, as scientists imagine ways to lower the cost and expand access for patients following the first wave of technical success with personalized cell therapies. Last month, Century announced that it got started with a $250 million financing commitment from Bayer, Versant Ventures, and Fujifilm. Janelle came to this company through her role at Versant where her job was to scope out some of the latest science and think about building companies around it. She was born and raised in Canada, got her PhD in chemistry at Harvard, and surprisingly found herself gravitating to venture capital and startups while at Merck. Somewhere along the way, she combined her interest in science and business with a cool extracurricular activity, a podcast called Human Proof of Concept. That ran for a couple years before she came to Versant and got immersed In Century Therapeutics. I'm including a link in the show notes if you'd like to look back at her archives. Now, before we start today's episode, a couple quick things. Do you enjoy this podcast? Your organization can support it through a sponsorship. There aren't many places where you can see an audience of 3,000 biotech leaders tuning in every other week for an immersive, in-depth conversation. Interested in raising your profile with this high-powered group of listeners, email me at luke at The other thing you can do to support quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. That gets you two to three articles a week on average. Companies and universities with more than one reader can purchase a group-sharing license when you do that, you'll be able to read not just my writing, but in-depth reports from savvy contributing writers who I edit, like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, Kyle Sarakawa, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Janelle Anderson on The Long Run. Janelle Anderson, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. So, Janelle, uh, you know this as a former podcaster, uh, that you, um, I've been looking to have you on this show for some time, Uh, (laughs) you were something of an influence to me when I was thinking about putting together this show in this format a couple of years ago through your work with the Human Proof of Concept uh, podcast. Uh, so, uh, which I thought was great. And it was th- sad to see it go, uh, when you took a new job in venture capital, you kind of went away in stealth mode for a while. And now you've come <laughs> back with, uh, this new off the shelf cell-, cell therapy company, Century Therapeutics. So, um, we've got a lot to cover, uh, in today's show, but, uh, I just want you to know, uh, from one podcaster to another, thanks for what you did there.
1: Oh, thanks for saying that. I really appreciate it. It was um, it was such a fun project to do for I did it for about two years, as you might remember. And it was funny because you had originally had a podcast and we talked about that as I was starting mine. And then you sort of went on hiatus with that one and then emerged back with the long run. And you and I s- talked about that also as I was winding down and going on hiatus into stealth mode myself personally, and also then <laughs> from a company perspective, we've been in stealth for a while now. So, but I really appreciate it. I, I it was a very um, rewarding part of my, uh, my background.
0: Yeah. At the time, I mean, you were doing uh, venture capital, and you know, people occasionally would have blogs out there. Bruce Booth, LifeSciVC VC, is a well-known one, but nobody was doing these extended uh, interviews with entrepreneurs, or or scientists, or maybe even fellow investors on occasion um, about like um, who they are as people and and how they came to um, where they are doing interesting things in biotech. So you, there's um, there's some common ground here. That's part of what I try to do. Here. So Janelle, for, for those who are um, unfamiliar with your story, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did uh, You are a Canadian. I do know this. So tell me about <laughs> what, where, where, where do you come from and uh, where were you born and raised?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, it's well known and probably obvious that I'm Canadian. There's a few things that creep in from time to time that um, I've never had the Desired or the, <laughs> the, made the effort to get rid of, I guess. I grew up in Winnipeg, which it, truly I believe to be the most isolated and coldest major city in North America. I think that's uh, factual, depending on how you define major city. And it was um, formative. That was a formative experience to grow up in such a place. And um, you interviewed Mike Gilman. He's a fellow Winnipegger. We, uh, we definitely high five each other when we, f- when we find each other out in the world and especially in the biotech world these days.
0: Now you are a, a, a different generation from Mike though. So what was, uh, your, uh, schooling experience like there in Winnipeg?
1: Yeah. I, I, so I went through the public school system and I'm a, I'm a believer in that it was, um, enriching and everything, but at, at at some point i realized you know there's not a there's not a lot of spread here where everybody feels very average and i wanted to i definitely had you know feelings of wanting to break out a little bit again maybe that's because i was living in a pretty isolated place it was hard to hard to break out and so you really wonder what's on the side of this wall uh, on the other side of this wall you, you know one thing is that i I'm also adopted, which is not a secret, but also you probably couldn't find it on Google either. Maybe now you can, but <laughs> once, once I uh, owe myself on a podcast, but I felt like that was, it was, you know, just something about me and lots of kids I knew actually in, in that era growing up in the seventies. And it was for me, it had the effect of making me feel somewhat untethered in a way. So there, I had no feelings, zero, completely 0.0 feelings of abandonment or anything like that. You know, I was, I felt actually lucky and privileged to have a family that I had, have. And uh, however, I did feel like, oh, but you know, just because my relatives do this, you know, that's not that that's not in my DNA. I could do something different. And so I think that kind of colored my ambitions from a from an early age. Funnily enough, I certainly wouldn't have realized it at the time. But I just think that comparing myself to others, I felt a, a
0: little bit less bound. Your genes weren't your destiny. <laughs> you you could do. Yeah. What, yeah. And what I you had no wanted. idea what they were. Yeah. Well, they could be anything. Um, did you have
1: siblings? Genetically, I do have some half-siblings. I didn't know them until I met them when I was 30 years old, but I was raised an only child, which is also a formative,
0: (laughs) you know, has its own effects, right? Okay. Okay. Raised an only child, uh, adoptive parents. Uh, What did your parents do for a living?
1: So they were both teachers and, you know, we were really close with my grandparents who were, in fact, frontier farmers in Canada, like new piece of land made a go of it, were reasonably successful. And then my mom is an only child as well. And uh, she became a teacher. My dad was a college teacher,
0: a college instructor. Okay. Okay. Now, when did you find out uh, about being adopted? Do you know what age? I never remember the first time. I was too young to remember. I always knew. I I take it you naturally did pretty well in school? Or was there a point when kind of you got the bug for science
1: yeah, you know it's interesting to think back now because I I liked it and uh, I did well in science and math and so forth and my my dad actually taught business statistics and and math in college that was that was his area and my mom was elementary school so there are different types of teachers but I there must have been on one hand a real ingrained value of education you know that was infused because of their vocations. At the same time, it made me realize that I didn't want to be a teacher, that I didn't have the patience for it. It didn't, you know, I had enough exposure to it to know that that was not something I should do. And so I really, by the time I was emerging from high school, it was more of a process of elimination exercise than it was a passion for science. And that, I mean, that's a kind of a big admission, right? Because I'm so pleased I went into science now, but you know, also, I have to say, when I was growing up, mums, if they had a job outside the home, it was nurse or teacher. And so that was starting to change as I grew up, but it wasn't, at least in the environment I was, it wasn't really clear what the, you know, that there were very many options or what those options were. And I only ended up choosing science. This is This is true. I have to admit it because I was offered a scholarship to do so. And that scholarship was, I mean, I give credit to the Canadian government for realizing almost 30 years ago that there was a problem with having not enough women in science. And so they were making some effort to give, they were giving scholarships to both boys and girls, but with an effort to make sure that it was balanced. And so that it, girls were 50 percent of the recipients, for example. And then, uh, you know, others later on in my in my college career, I, I got additional scholarships that, that were just for women and also thanks to the Canadian government. And those made the entire difference. I probably would have gone into arts instead of sciences because it was not an obvious choice. I was, you know, able to do different activities. And and I even contemplated going into music, to be honest with you, when I was a when I when I was a kid, and I ended up choosing science because I got paid to do it. And by the way, like just to just to level set American listeners, college in Canada, to some extent now, certainly, and definitely back then was you know, this was not a $50,000 a year sort of venture. It was a couple of thousand. And one thing, yeah, yeah. And so I could pay for it myself. So my parents never paid for me to go to college. I don't even know if they had the money to do it, to be honest with you. I was just, uh, we had a, a sort of a family approach that I didn't realize at the time where we were just we had an igg response to debt like <laughs> we i think we had a mortgage on our house but i think we bought you know old used cars with cash and those <laughs> those kinds of things that you do when you don't want to take out a loan and it didn't even seem it never really entered my mind as a possibility to take out student loans and with scholarships i didn't have to and and the the amount was far less than we think of now in the us so It was all possible to do it without debt.
0: So were you were you just like a a straight A student in uh, high school, like experimenting with lots of different subjects, seeing what was interested? And then someone like there was this program in Canada to advance women scientists. And I don't know, maybe a teacher or a guidance counselor told you about this and said, hey, Janelle, you might want to apply for this. Or how did that happen? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was pretty much like that. Yeah, I, I was um, I had a lot of interests. They're pretty broad and that didn't help me narrow things down at the time that I needed to narrow them down and make a big decision. But it was yeah, I wouldn't credit the guidance counselor at my high school to, <laughs> to be to be frank. But uh, we all it was a. Well enough known program at that time, you know, I think it may have been automatic, actually. I don't think you had to apply for it. It was just, you know, if you were going into science and uh, you, your grades were at a certain level and you managed to keep them at a certain level, you your tuition was paid for.
0: Interesting. So, like, full ride. And you could go to, um, the, uh, you went to McGill, right? I mean, the big city, Montreal. I mean, well, great school. Yeah. It's a long way away from home. All that
1: sort of, but not exactly. I actually started university about two miles from home at the university of Manitoba. And, uh, because actually the, the scholarship I was referencing, you could take it anywhere in Canada. And so it didn't matter where I was, but I, it didn't really occur to me to go anywhere else. Isn't that amazing? Like for all of the, for all of the desire I had to kind of get out and see the world I didn't have the means to do it, and so it was absolutely unclear to me how that would ever work. And then after after a, a in fact two years at that university, I realized, oh, <laughs> this money pays for my tuition. But I, I mentioned I got a second scholarship, and that one enabled me to to actually live somewhere else, pay rent. Uh, I had a you know a summer job guaranteed for you know in a lab in the summers. And I met a lot of like-minded women, actually, at that time, uh, where we were all away, maybe for the first time. We were still teenagers, actually. And, and that was the real, that was the really big moment, I think, where <laughs> I transferred from a, you know, a kid that was dabbling in this area to somebody who was really serious about making their way in the world and in science.
0: Okay. So you did a couple of years at University of Manitoba, public university. And uh, and then that's when you made the move to McGill. That's right. And I had to go there.
1: I remember I took a day off of my summer job. I traveled, which was not in Montreal. I traveled to Montreal. I went to see the chair of the Department of Chemistry at McGill, and I talked him into taking me three months after the deadline for transfers. And that's what I <laughs> must had to been do. Pretty
0: <laughs> persuasive. <laughs> yeah,
1: it worked. It worked. But you know that there's um yeah, I'll take credit for doing it. But at the same time, I didn't realize that he had, you know, he had a favorite student that I was very similar to who had just graduated and left. And so when I walked in, I think he saw like a duplicate of that person coming in and saying, like, I'm, you know, <laughs> you, you might have lost one, but here's another for you. And <laughs> and because I brought my own money and, and things like that, it was, it was maybe a feather in the cap of the department. And I, yeah, I managed it. I found the person who could pull the strings and he did it for me.
0: You and I are about the same age. So this would have been something like early to mid 90s. You're doing your undergraduate research. Did, were, were, um, you said science, but were, were you beginning to narrow in a little more specifically on the area that interested you at McGill?
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, so I was actually double honors in physics and chemistry for a period of time. And then I decided to focus just on chemistry. And and part of it was because it was a central science, right? We like to call it the central science. And so this is another area where I, you know, I probably wanted it all, right? I wanted to, to think about biology and I wanted to think of physics. And chemistry allowed me to do both of those things on either side.
0: Was this where you kind of began to become a little more directed toward the pharmaceutical industry or did that come later?
1: I... Would say that came later. And part of it was because I had more of a, I think, a puritanical view about industry at that point. And I really felt, you know, science was science for science's sake. (laughs) And that, you know, it was um, starting to become questionable when you applied it to something.
0: Well, that attitude was pretty, pretty common in academia, especially then. Still is now in some quarters, but that would have been in the air.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I I definitely prescribed to that at the time.
0: Okay. Okay. So how did you end up going to Harvard?
1: So I finished up at McGill and uh, applied all over the place. I actually had a, um, one of my mentors from my, the summer job that I had gave me the piece of advice that I should go to the best American university I could get into. And, and this is a Canadian guy telling me this, right? So it was, uh, I, I took it pretty seriously and as it happened, it was logistically convenient as well, because all of the American applications had to go in before any of the. I, I could actually find out if I got into any American universities for grad school before the Canadian ones were even due. So I could use all of Canada as a safety school. It sounds terrible, right? But it was the way the timing worked, whether I had taken his advice or not,
0: I could have I done it this way. Did this guy say why he wanted you to go to America?
1: I think he believed, whether he said it or not, that it would pave the way uh, you know, and really open more doors for what I wanted to do next. And I wasn't planning to do that. It really came from him. I was thinking I could use graduate school as a chance to, again, I had these visions of seeing the world. And I, I had never at that time been outside of the U.S. or Canada. So I felt still like there was a lot out there. I was annoyed with myself that I hadn't seen any of it. I'd never been to Paris or you know wherever, and maybe I should go. Maybe I should do a PhD at the Sorbonne or at Oxford or something. You know that would give me a chance to be away and get that uh, other dimension in there. And he said no. <laughs> he told me. I remember very specific specifically. He said that's a crazy idea. I've been to Paris 25 times and that's not, you should go there on vacation or whatever, but you should go to America to do your graduate school.
0: Interesting. Go to those, one of those great U S universities with a hundred years and plus of, um, investment in research. And, and then that will be your ticket to the world. That's it. Maybe you can come back to Canada and and do something else here or, or go elsewhere. Then (laughs) that was his point.
1: That was his point. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what kind of lab did you settle in there at Harvard?
1: Well, first of all, I did take a year off because, uh, again, I, as I indicated, I was um, pretty dissatisfied with myself that I had never been outside of North America and I got a third scholarship actually that was um, called a traveling scholarship. And I called up Harvard and I said, look, I, I know um, you're expecting me there in a couple of months and, um, I, and, you know, we're all on the same page here. I've accepted just one little thing. Uh, I'd like to take a semester off and start in January instead of September. And they said, no, <laughs> you, can't. you can, nobody starts in January uh, dream on you can start this September, or if you like, you can start next September. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to do this. And so I ended up using my traveling scholarship money to l- literally travel And I said, thank you very much to Harvard. Just defer me for one year then. And I showed up a year late.
0: So you took a gap year. I guess we call it a gap year now. I don't know if they called it that then.
1: Um, Yeah, I don't uh, think we did, but it was was a whole lot of backpacking.
0: Saw the world, got that out of your system and came back uh, rested and recharged and ready to go in graduate school.
1: That's right. With a whole other suite of experiences and, you know, I made that comment about Paris, that's where I flew into, (laughs) Paris first. And after that, I I don't know how many other countries I went to. I ended up seeing a lot of, um, I mean, Western, but also Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Southeast Asia. I took the Trans-Siberian train from Beijing to Moscow. Like I did everything I wanted to do. And then I came back ready. I mean, obviously people do it a lot, but um, I highly recommend it. It was really, really valuable And the joke now is, you know, in in being in BD and doing a lot of negotiating, I think, wow, you know, where I really cut my teeth negotiating was the Middle East. (laughs) When I was traveling alone as a 22 year old woman, that was when I was really negotiating.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, That that takes a certain amount of self-assurance to do that. It was fun. (laughs) Probably a good sign. Well, okay, so um, you go to graduate school um, was... um, were you thinking that you would pursue a long-term career in academia, in science, or how did you make that shift toward industry?
1: It's a great question. And one I'm, I, I am asked a fair bit, actually, because obviously people have these thoughts if they're, if they already find themselves in graduate school, I joined the Whitesides lab when I was at Harvard and you know, George was larger than life. He was sitting on the GM board at the time, I believe. He had an enormous reputation. Had started multiple companies. You know, GelTech ended up becoming Genzyme. You know, he was to us human, <laughs> but to the world, you know, really an important person. And so, I was. I'm glad that I went through his lab, but it also gave me additional breadth. And so I didn't really go in thinking I wanted to be a professor. And when I was there, I realized I definitely didn't want to be a professor. It just didn't, it wasn't a fit.
0: George would have been one of these people who didn't subscribe to the kind of anti-industry bias, right? Mm -hmm. As someone who had spun out his inventions into the business world, he he saw a, a role or a relationship between these two areas.
1: He did. That's true. But also for me, for whatever combination of reasons, I I was really I was really starting to pinpoint that that what made me most interested about chemistry is how small how molecules interacted with the body. And so essentially, I mean, I guess I'm describing pharmacology in a way which wasn't where I, I wasn't in the medical school or whatever. I wasn't doing that kind of Ph.D., But it was always the question I was asking how uh, if I had to write an essay on a chemistry topic, that's what I would choose. Right. Even in undergrad. And so I was already thinking about drugs by the time I was. I remember asking George questions about, uh, you know, do you do are you doing drug discovery, would you say? And in many ways, you could you know, construe it as that, I suppose. But George was doing so many different things that you could really join the lab and find your way around to do almost anything you wanted. And that enablement was one of the things that really drove me to his lab in the first place. You know, it happened to be true. I ended up doing a lot of more nanotechnology, microfluidics, so almost engineering type projects when I was there. But I was getting more and more interested, like you were just pointing out, in the in the potential of industry, and so as I was going through, all things being equal, I probably would have gone either into a high tech startup or a biotech startup. And keep in mind that this was the late nineties, right? And so the economy was raging; things were really good. If you were in school at the time, you were saying like, "How fast am I going to get out of school? Because I want to be in, you know, <laughs> I want to be in the working world. That they, there's so much to be done there; it's really, really great." And we hadn't hit the skids in two thousand one yet. So that was, yes, that was all part of the graduate school experience.
0: So you get your PhD in chemistry from Harvard, the Whitesides Lab, no less. Um, this really is um, <laughs> a pretty good ticket to punch, to go around the world. You could do a lot of things with that. But then, like, as often happens when people get to the end of graduate school, they wonder, okay, what am I really going to do? <laughs> and I think you, you went to consulting, right?
1: Yeah. Yep. I went straight into Boston Consulting Group. I didn't do a postdoc, no nothing.
0: Why'd you do that? Yeah,
1: it was a big decision. As I mentioned, I was already leaning towards industry for sure. There was no question I was not going to go into academia. I just didn't find that appealing for me. But I started questioning if if I'm already intent on going into industry, why stop at a scientific industry. Why don't? Like, how do I know I wouldn't want to be in banking or, you know, or retail or whatever? Uh, and going into going into management consulting gave me the chance to really explore projects in all of those areas. In fact, I couldn't have. I, you can't even avoid it, right? You you have to do projects in all of those types of areas. Um, it's like a punch card, but <laughs> not, not quite. But I so that became really appealing, but. I, but again, there's a there's a base level here as well where I did a PhD and not an MD because I got a small stipend for doing a PhD and I would have had to pay for medical school. Again, debt was not something that I could possibly imagine how that worked. So I, I couldn't, I, I just felt, well, I, I'm limited. I can't do an MD. I have to do a PhD, but it's great. It's a ticket to Harvard and it's wonderful and this experience will be fantastic. And And so similarly- when I'm now thinking about what to do after graduate school and a postdoc is pretty similar to the, I mean, maybe, maybe 2X the stipend I was getting for five years at Harvard. And then you compare what it, what it's like to go into management consulting and, and be gainfully employed with a, you know, with a really significant paycheck. That was, I, again, it just sounds like whoever will pay me, I'll follow them, but <laughs> that that was a really seminal part of a lot of decisions, you know, in my teens and twenties.
0: Postdocs notoriously live on starvation wages. Uh, in those days, you know, it would it was seen as a a temporary kind of bridge to something else, uh, more gainful employment, as you'd say. Uh, but uh, yeah, another. But it also is is what a way of continuing one's graduate school education where you go, you know, you drill a million miles deep on a narrow topic, uh, but you don't get a whole lot of breath often. Um, and postdocs, you know, can, can be that way too. Whereas when you go to management consulting, this is different. Now, you're, uh, you're, <laughs> you're surfacing back up and looking around at a whole wide array of topics and make enforcing and yourself to think more broadly. That's right. About what you can do with that PhD, that chemistry knowledge that you got.
1: That's right. That's exactly it. And I, I have to say that the, I, I wasn't there for too long before I realized for once and for all, oh, actually, I love science. And so it took going that broad to realize it's where I wanted to be, right? Because when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you don't see that. Uh, again, I came out of um, came out of high school. Well, that seemed like the that seemed like the best choice I could make, and so I, I liked it. But I liked other things as well. Well, I didn't like everything. By the time I got into management consulting, I didn't like working for a, on a banking project or, or what have you. Those were not intriguing to me. I didn't like it. I liked working for pharma's and biotechs and and those clients. And I felt like I have, I I had more value in that I had one foot in the science and I could, I could, you know, speak that language, of course, and one foot in this new area, new to me of business. But mostly I just realized about myself, I didn't ever want to lose having one foot in the science. And that was the most valuable lesson I probably got the entire time. It was fantastic.
0: Now, I don't want to talk about every stop along the way. Uh, There were some small companies. Eventually, you end up with Merck. And I think that was, you spent a few years there. So that was a pretty important experience. What what was your big takeaway from your time? Well, what did you start doing there? And how did that role evolve?
1: Yeah, good question, because it did definitely evolve. I mean, that's another nice thing, similar to my choosing a large lab for graduate school. I had the exact same thing in mind when I went to Merck, which was, you know, I'm going to go in having a, a business role. They called a business integrator um, within MRL, the R&D division. And I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to be the sort of handpicked one person uh, working on this new discovery site where there, there are no wet labs. It's all external to Merck, which at a at the time was a pretty, Riveting concept for for Merck that you know amazing science could come from the outside as well, and it, this was a formal acknowledgement of that.
0: Yeah, Merck Merck was in those days known uh, maybe a little bit of one of those not invented here syndrome kind of companies. Mm.
1: <laughs> well, and and you know there was a there was an understandable pride. There was a belief internally that uh, you know we've got the best scientists. But even so, even if you grant that that was a factual statement, which you know would be hard to prove but but even if you believe it thoroughly it's still not true to say that there's no important excellent science happening outside even if you believe that so yeah it was it was an it was nice to be part of that paradigm shift and it was really an emerging idea that was only being formalized then in the in the yeah late 2000s i guess yeah like 2008 is when i joined
0: so you're you're focused on external um, scientific collaborations yes. with Merck, serving yes. as kind of a liaison.
1: Yeah, in a way. I mean, there were probably other people who were actually called liaisons, but uh, but our group represented every therapeutic area that Merck actually was working in at the time, and we had we had the scientific management, if you will, but the actual bench work was by definition, happening outside. We were executing on programs the same way that internal science at Merck was happening. And it was a really interesting idea to consolidate this in this virtual discovery site. And that's why I was brought on. But my thinking at the time was, this company has, I don't remember actually now whether it was 60,000 people or 80,000 or whatever. It's a huge company. And I thought, if this this doesn't work out for me, it looks great right now, but there's going to be you know, 60,000 other jobs I could do. And that's an exciting prospect. As it turns out, uh, in the first few years I was there, we ended up, the Merck and Shearing Plow merger happened. Uh, What I learned is that it's, ultimately just as easy to tear down a virtual site <laughs> as it is to build it up in the sense that <laughs> it's it's harder to get rid of an actual bricks and mortar footprint than it is a virtual site. And so we were, this group, because it was virtual, was a bit of a target. And so most of those people got redistributed back into the company into different areas. And that was, that was too bad, in a way, because it was an experiment I would have liked to have seen run for a longer. But that also afforded an opportunity to do something completely different. And the completely different thing I ended up doing was this group of little business, or I should say little group of business people that I was a part of, although we were deployed in different sites, they kind of picked us up and lifted and shifted us into the finance division and said, okay, you're there now, which is funny because a lot of us were PhDs without a lot of finance background, myself included. And so the first thing I did was hire some competent accountants to help me with the gaps I had in my knowledge, not having done an MBA, and decided to just learn as much as possible and be as effective as possible in this role as a finance lead. And I ended up getting these um, roles of increasing responsibility. So I went from um, a discovery site to all of Biologics R&D, and then all of vaccines R and D was added onto onto that in terms of my purview from a finance lead perspective. But the best part of it was, if you remember, I came from this molecular background, and that was that was sort of who I was. And now, I had a seat at the table. The leadership, I was part of the you know the top leadership team, and I was there to talk about financials. Uh, you know the the budget, but also financial analyses, and should we do this deal? And da da. But I got to listen to all the things the top scientists in this in these subdivisions were thinking about, and that meant I learned everything that there was to know in this environment about monoclonal antibodies and how you develop them, and eventually vaccines, virus like particles, and it was. It was really fantastic. I mean, I just felt like <laughs> I'm growing from a few atoms to, yeah, just a really, really larger scale.
0: Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach 3,000 to 4,000 biotech leaders in an immersive listening experience every other week. Another alternative is just to subscribe to Timmerman Report go to timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. Interested in getting a group sharing license at your company or university? Email me at luke at When, When you first said finance, like coming from a scientist's perspective, I mean, that might sound like it could be a dead end. Like that could be bean counting, you know, uh, making sure that, you know, these collaborations are not overspending their budgets. And, um, you know, if we're going to negotiate the collaboration with little biotech company over here, you know, here's what the upfront ought to be and the milestones, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that could that could be kind of dull <laughs> numbers land, I guess. Uh, but you you're this actually turned into like um uh, a really good way for you to get exposed to uh, lots of science within a big company like Merck's portfolio, and how they thought about, um, you know, what what is a biologics uh, collaboration? What does that look like compared to, you know, a small molecule collaboration?
1: That's right, and also, I mean, some parts of the finance, the, the pure finance part of my job, were dull. I won't argue with that, but the but all of the other all of the other components were so you know we're we're so fulfilling uh, it, it was a actually a really really deep
0: and unforeseen learning experience now how did this morph into corporate venture capital cuz that's you know more recent history now
1: yeah it's funny right so um i remember sitting in a meeting shortly after the merger with shearing plow and you know we were doing some we had already been reshuffled uh, as i mentioned but also now i'm in finance and there was one bullet point on one slide in one meeting that my manager, who supported the head of our MRL and reported to the CFO, somehow on on that slide, there was a comment about, you know, one of our corporate objectives, objectives is to support the the new venture fund. And I swear... <laughs> You know, I had already gone, we didn't touch on it, but I had gone from management consulting into venture capital and then into Merck. And I felt like I'm the only person in this entire company, which is now over 100,000 people that has any venture capital experience. And so subsequent to the meeting, I had my hand raised immediately to say, What's going on with this venture fund you're talking about? Because I had asked at my job interview with Merck, why don't you have a corporate venture arm? And so I was thinking about this stuff, but I think to be honest with you, I think I was off on maternity leave or something when there was one meeting with the, you know, outgoing head of MRL and the incoming head of BD or some, you know, some flux of people. In some meeting, and actually, I think it it was with Ken Frazier, and there was the the idea brought up, we want to have $250 million to invest in early stage ventures. And that's about all that he said, okay, and that's about all we had to go on. And so that somehow made it into a bullet point. I saw that bullet point, (laughs) and I went to the powers of B and said, get me involved in this. I really... Um, you need me, I need this, it sounds great. And I ended up hooking up with a colleague who I didn't even know at the time, who was, had been in BD, Merck for maybe 25 years at that point, but in BD for several, and was, at that time, it's hard to believe, but Merck's business development presence at that time in Boston was really him. And his name is Reed Leonard, Who and he's a great friend now. But we didn't know each other, and we ended up being, although we weren't even in the same geography, we ended up being sort of joined at the hip, assigned to this project that had no funding or headcount or cost center that you could charge to, or you know anything other than our understanding that Ken Frazier had said, yeah, that's a good idea, do that.
0: <laughs> and we just There's ran a pattern with it. here I think Janelle with your your appetite for risk it's pretty healthy i mean you um <laughs> you looked at yeah. this and said this is something that appeals to you um intellectually and uh it makes sense from the company perspective and then you raised your hand uh and said okay somebody needs to do this i will do this and uh um and you know cause corporate venture capital as you of course know now <laughs> i mean it um Lots of companies try it, but um not everyone does it very well and sometimes you know a new management team comes in and they it's it's quick and easy to throw out and frankly, two hundred and fifty million is not a lot of money if you're Merck. <laughs> they could easily move that around somewhere else um so there there was a risk here, but you took it and what was the big learning for you in in that uh, experience? You know
1: the environment was. Not what we're living in now, I should say that up front. So this was back in, we probably really started in earnest in 2011, or maybe the very end of 2010. And if you think back to how much capital was floating around in the ecosystem at that time, it was night and day to where we are today. And that was... I mean, you know, I'm talking about a 250 million dollar fund. We're, we're, you know, in a moment we're going to talk about Century Therapeutics. It just announced a 250 million dollar financing.
0: Yeah, for one right? startup so company. So this is
1: for one company. <laughs> That's right for one company. And so <laughs> this is we're living in a different time, and that was actually a great thing for us because to to become and emerge on the scene as a corporate a new corporate venture group was fantastic. Because at that time, startups needed corporate venture money. Right now, it's a little more questionable whether it's really, you know, as valued in the system because there's so much private money.
0: Coming out of the financial crisis, corporate venture capital was crucial for keeping the whole startup ecosystem alive uh, when traditional venture capital, you know, went AWOL.
1: That's it. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And there and, and in fact, you could we were kind of plotting in real time, the increasing percentage of corporate venture dollars in deals. And so we were there right on that cusp, where we were, we were needed and valued. And, and we could get a seat at the table.
0: Okay. Now, we're, uh, I want to get into Century Therapeutics pretty quick. There were, there were a couple of interim stops for you. you. You went to a traditional venture firm, CTI, and then um, you made your move to Versant. I guess this would have been a couple years ago?
1: That's right. Yeah, in 2017.
0: And your, your marching order was to be entrepreneur in residence. Mm-hmm. Is that, was that the idea from the beginning?
1: Yeah, it, uh, we discussed different roles, but yes, entrepreneur and residence was the was the idea from the beginning. I had come from both at Merck and then my my next role at uh, at CTI were primarily on the deal making side. There wasn't a lot of operational. Uh, there wasn't a big operational component there, and I that's another that's another two pies where I'd like to have uh, you know a finger in each, <laughs> and um, I thought, you know, this is an, a great opportunity to be involved in a large fund with a great reputation and and actually practice many of the things that I've learned but haven't done in a while on the operational side. And so hence the entrepreneur in residence title, which by the way means something totally different at every different firm. And in fact, even within firms, different people with that title are, you know, pretty varied. So that's, you know, it's not, it doesn't define much, but that, but that's okay. It was, there was a particular company that I came in to help build from scratch and it wasn't Century, but pretty soon after a few months, Century was a little bit more and more on my radar because it was getting a lot of traction internally. There was a lot of verse and interest in this idea and the concept of, of building Century from scratch.
0: Well, let me take a stab at what I understand from your initial press release here. I mean, I, a number of pieces are coming together here for um, off-the-shelf cell therapies for cancer. Uh, this is something that we've heard a lot about uh, as kind of the next generation. There's been um, a lot of excitement around autologous, you know, personalized T-cell engineered therapies from uh, Novartis and um, now Kite-Gilead. Juno Gene has one, too. Uh, they have their, their their great data for a couple of indications, uh, but, um, you know, high cost of goods, uh, difficult to manufacture, logistically tricky. So a lot of the people who have been a part of that, uh, that wave have thought, gee, wouldn't it be better if you could just have generalized kind of universal s- cells off the shelf that you could give to people with cancer and get that kind of... Uh, you know, incredible. You know, eighty percent response rate or sixty percent response rate that we've exactly. seen. Exactly. Right. Um. So. So this leads us to off the shelf, and then uh, what I think is interesting here. Now, uh, you've you there are different ways to do this. I mean, people have tried to engineer cells, right, with um, talons or CRISPR uh, to kind of engineer some ideal properties into these T cells so that they. Kill the cancer. They go specifically after the the antigen on the tumor cells, but you know, hopefully, don't cause too much in the way of of serious side effects. Um, it's been that's been hard. Nobody's quite done it. Uh, but now, the different idea here is: can you can you like develop these cells with induced pluripotent stem cell lines? Like, kind of grow up, optimized cell lines. Am I am I getting this right?
1: Yeah. No, that's, it. that's exactly right. So the main thing to think about with the, the century technology is that using induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSCs, gives us a renewable cell source. So these cells are originally derived from a blood sample from a healthy adult, but when reprogrammed into iPSCs, they can be banked and engineered and banked again. From those collections, you can select a clone it can self-replicate, and your expanded population is consistent. It can be fully sequenced and characterized. Um, so you know what you have, and you don't have to keep going back to square one and getting a donor sample. Among other issues, that's heterogeneous, which affects product potency. So this was the concept underlying century um, at a time when you know, everybody who's autologous is starting to think allogeneic. And so, for example, Versant was following the space and figuring out like, how could we, you know, what would be the best way to be involved and to lead in this space? And the answer ended up being Century. And that was at a time when I was there. And I, you know, I talked about going from small molecules to monoclonal antibodies to to vaccines and my progression over the years. And so so using cells as a living drug is, I suppose, in a way, the obvious next step. But that's something I became really passionate about. You know, I only had to go to one conference to hear breaking abstracts where the complete response and the the durable response was so incredibly high. I thought, oh, there's, you know, how would I not go headlong into this I have to, I want to do this all the time. And so that's how from from being an entrepreneur in residence at Versant, I became involved in Century at the very beginning of 2018 when it was not even a term sheet in place. And, you know, and kind of the rest is history, as they say. So now I'm, a, I'm actually a permanent employee of, of Century. That's where I'm uh, now and in the future.
0: I want to ask you about how that company got set up in a second, but uh, key component, there, there's three crucial parties that came to the, around the table here. Versant Ventures being one experienced with uh, venture-backed startups, uh, putting together teams, licensing technology, getting it going, all that stuff. Uh, you've got uh, buyer, which is a big pharma partner that can bring some money and some development horsepower, presumably, as you get further along. Um, and but, but crucially here, you've got to have an IPSC provider, and that's Fujifilm Cellular Dynamics. Now, this is the one, I, I actually covered Cellular Dynamics. It comes out of, you know, I'm a Wisconsinite, and so I've covered that company that came out of Jamie Thompson's lab at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, you know, Pioneer, of course, you know this, in, in embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells. They, you know, they struggled to get some footing as a company for a while. I mean, they were coming up with differentiated IPSCs for, you know, drug Testing whether they be neurons or liver cells, heart cells, Um, and I I think they've they did okay with that. But then you know I remember toward the end they came up with some what they called universal cell lines that um, could basically evade immune surveillance. They would be not rejected. So like I guess there's just a couple of (laughs) gifted individuals maybe that provided those cells. And they were reprogrammed in such a way that they could be, you know, impl- implanted for variety in- into different hosts and not cause either graft versus host or, you know, other kind of immunogenic type reactions. That, that seemed like a, r- a crucial and really interesting step. Um, was, that, um, was that an important one? And, and what came later?
1: Having stealth technology is absolutely critical for an allogeneic therapy right? I mean, it's by definition. Without that, you don't have anything except a host versus graph problem. But I would say that there's uh, additional breadth here. So for example, you mentioned uh, Jamie Thompson's reprogramming technology, and that goes back to when he founded CDI over a decade ago. You're right, there's there's several different directions you can take that. But now, fast forwarding to 2019, what's amazing is that the differentiation technology and the commercial manufacturing capabilities that reside there, there's a, a really integrated enablement that comes with being a partner of Fuji CDI. So that was what was initially captivating to us and, and remains that way. You know, we're, We have a great partnership and it was extremely important because you can imagine that Century was able to hit the ground running scientifically as soon as found it
0: a lot of people thought in the early days of iPSCs that they would form the basis for regenerative medicines. You know, you come up with new neurons and inject them somehow for patients who, uh, you know, with Parkinson's. Or maybe you, you you create differentiated pancreatic islet cells and use those for diabetes. None of that stuff has really worked out. But that imperative, that, that goal, um, forced companies like CDI uh, in particular to invest in some of the the GMP cell production facilities necessary if you're going to do such a thing consistently with right purification to FDA specs, all that, right?
1: Yep, exactly. And that's, that's still an ongoing area of research, of course. So not to say that it's not going to be, you know, extremely fruitful in the long run. We're, uh, so century is oncology focused.
0: Okay. So what, what, what are the kind of, um, modifications that you can build into an optimal T cell, a T cell for cancer.
1: Right. And we're not limited to T's either that, you know, there's been a lot of work in T's, but also in K's, you know, there's a lot of promise in, in both of those areas. And so regardless of which immune cell is your end product, there are a number of gene edits that coming from an iPSC base, you can make almost without limitation. Whereas when your starting material is donor-derived, you are very limited as to the extent and requirements of every gene edit. It's not feasible. And so I mentioned stealth technologies, but one can also imagine different types of chimeric antigen receptors. With binders for specific targeting and signaling within an overall design, any of the above can be a validated construct or something novel and proprietary. There's also more engineering I won't go into explicitly, but consider the modifications required to overcome exhaustion, certain toxicities, and the suppressive microenvironment in solid tumors. There's really, the sky's the limit in terms of how many and what types of gene edits we can make because of the base technology. That's really a competitive advantage here. So
0: I'm guessing you can imagine combinations of things so like with the first generation autologous they've been aimed uh, successfully at cd19 uh, and if you deplete the heck out of cd19 you know it's generally okay <laughs> um, we've seen some other things with um, you know neurotoxicity and such and cytokine release uh, that you know people want to keep a very close eye on and, and mitigate and reduce but but um, you know finding the right antigen Um, Is obviously very important. Um, There aren't that many of them that are super specific. But, you know, is there a way to like maybe maybe come up with a couple different uh, off-the-shelf cell lines? One that dials up the tumor killing and another that might um, tamp down the potential wild autoimmune reaction. You know what I mean? Right. And you don't need two cell lines to do that. You can do that in the same cell. There's
1: a lot you can pack in there. To me, that's the beauty of it, right? I, it's a really multidimensional problem that, that, that we're working with here, where a small molecule drug uh, or a monoclonal or, or different type of biologic is um, pretty uh, unidimensional. There's a lot of things that we can pack in a cell or take out of a cell, as the case may be.
0: And so you, you can grow these up. Consistently at scale, presumably a lot lower cost. This is partly what, you know, Fujifilm CDI has been working on for a number of years.
1: Exactly. They're really the leaders in that.
0: Now, $250 million, $250 million comes to work in, this, uh, you know, in, a, in a company that's still, I mean, very early, right? I mean, all of this is preclinical. That's right. You know, that's a lot of money. And, you know, I think once upon a time, uh, as a younger reporter, I would, you know, put a lot of legitimacy in, wow, you know, prominent, smart people putting lots of money into a concept that must be like really interesting and have a lot of potential. Well, yes, but it also creates a whole lot of pressure to, um, to really hit the ball out of the park because anything less than a, a billion dollar acquisition or IPO is not going to cut it. Um, so what, 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 uh, how do you balance these two things and what what do you have to do there at century to make this work
1: well part of it is there's that somewhat validation of the of the promise and potential of the technologies that we're bringing together under one roof you know that's the a good side of it you're you're right it puts the pressure on but in another way it also takes the pressure off we can use these proceeds for years and build our team internally really pretty quickly and so we've got when you think that we were really only 3 people probably on January 1st technically and then now we're about 23 people or <laughs> whatever it is today i'd have to i'd have to check you know we've all, already been growing quite quickly but that internal r&d structure is and will continue to be the majority of our of our people and as i said we hit the ground running a while ago but these proceeds will allow us to grow As quickly or even more quickly, so that we've got all the experiments going at maximum acceleration, so we can get to product as soon as possible.
0: It's really a sign of the times. This need to be aggressive at a time of so much potential and so much competition, both in the technology and for the people. I mean, I know you got High Levitsky, the former CSO at Juno, to come in there That's on right. the startup team. I mean, I, I suppose like
1: absolutely ha-
0: having the money and the ability to really execute quickly uh, probably factored into his decision somewhat.
1: You'd have to ask him, but I'm sure, I'm sure that it did. I'm sure that it did. So there's, you know, there's a desire to be not uh, capital limited and focus that on accelerating to the clinic. And so that's, that's what we're doing now. And by the way, the f- I mentioned bringing a lot of technologies under one roof and that kind of platform build out so that we have everything we need. I'm not saying that, you know, we, we could have a hundred people And still not be able to be developing everything internally ourselves. That's where BD is so important, right? We have to be collaborating with the outside world. We have to be bringing in and getting access to what's out there so that we are able to do everything we need to do as century and pack everything we need into our century cells. And so that's what we'll be able to do. But the the near-term goal is building that platform, and then we'll be turning the crank.
0: And is part of your role as chief strategy officer to continue to interface with uh, that outside world, those collaborators, making sure you have the right collaborations in place? And-
1: Absolutely. Like I said, there's a lot of technologies to be either that we need to be able to access or that we need to bring in or that we need to collaborate in order to share know-how, and those all, you know, fall under the strategy or business development moniker.
0: Now, one last little thing I want to ask is about uh, how this thing is geographically far flung. Because uh, I know that that's part of the Versant model. Uh, Versant's got people all over the world and uh, doesn't necessarily try to compete with everybody in biotech venture capital in Boston, where there's a lot of activity. You've got offices in Philadelphia, Seattle, um, Couple areas with a lot of strength in cell therapy for cancer, obviously with Penn and the Fred Hutch um, anchors there, Juno people, and and. Uh, the whole Novartis collaboration, et cetera. So you're, uh, why those areas? And, and by the way, are you still in New York or do you just like live on a plane all the time or or what?
1: <laughs> no, I was, I think I was living on a plane more in uh, 2018, 2017, 2018 than I am these days. But uh, no, I, so I live in the New York area, but I live on the, let's say the Philadelphia side of it. <laughs> so there's actually, there's a number of us who reside in New Jersey And although I'm technically closer to New York, Philly is uh, not at all
0: impossible. Easy train ride.
1: Yeah, it is, actually. Yeah. So that's been uh, a a pleasant surprise. And you're completely right about the cell therapy focus and depth of expertise that is in Philly and Seattle specifically, which which is part of the reason that we're headquartered in Philly with a Seattle site um, that's on the way. So, yeah, that, that's really the reason for that. That doesn't mean that we don't have collaborators all over the place. You mentioned Wisconsin, but also, you know, our founders are from are from Boston and from the Bay Area. So <laughs> the, the, we bring in the usual suspects as well. Right. In terms of geographies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You guys are good customers for um, the video conference companies. <laughs>
1: Are we ever? Yeah, no, we totally rely on that. But the other thing is, I mean, we try to be, I will say that there's, it's so nice to be a part of a company from the very beginning, not just because you might contribute to how the culture emerges, but because you see it emerging. And we're really focused. I just want to make a make a comment because we're thinking of geographies and so forth. We're really focused on patient access down the road. And the whole dream around allogeneic, this, this sort of universal off the shelf, is that it can be universal in another way, right? You don't have to be within 50 miles of Boston or L.A. or, or, or a big center where there's a, you know, there's a clinic because you're going into, because you, you need an autologous product, with, with an allogeneic product, you don't need that. That's the beauty of being off the shelf. And we feel like, well, there's such an, an opportunity to reach so many more patients that way. You know, Even if you were just thinking about rural versus urban populations in the US, then you pointed out the cost is a, on a completely, you know, that's a completely different equation with allogeneic. And so that also inevitably will allow us to access more patients. But beyond even those two, there's also the fact that we've been traditionally focused in cell therapy on hematological malignancies. And there are really good reasons for that. But there's no biological reason that prevents us from going into solid tumors, especially when you can make the kinds of gene edits that we can make, you know, with ease, because we can keep relying on a renewable progenitor cell. And that if when you think about it, there's about only 10% of cancers are heme. And the other 90% is solid. So think about, again, the patient access that comes along with that. This is We're trying to make a major play with a great big vision. And that, that speaks to the great big amount of money that it's going to take to get us there.
0: Well, um, it's, a, it's a great challenge. It's worth um, rolling up the sleeves, spending a lot of money. Putting, putting a lot uh, at risk, especially when you think about the potential for a lower cost uh, cell therapy that really more likely can reach a large population, both in the U.S. and other countries of the world, because anything that costs over $100,000 or, or more, I mean, it's just, it's just not going to get to the masses. So I wish you best of luck, Janelle, with Century Therapeutics. Thank you for joining me on The Long Run.
1: Oh, thanks, Luke. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.